continue with Luke's introduction of Paul, who will, of course, uh, dominate the latter half of Luke's account of the history of the early church. And here in chapter 9, we are merely introduced to Saul of Tarsus and his uh, dramatic experience, his encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. This morning, we'll be looking at uh, chapter 9, verses 20 through 30. I'd like to read that passage, and I'd like to ask uh, Jonathan Freitag if you would pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Now, excuse me, beginning in verse um, 19 and a half. Now, for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, and not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles, and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Let us pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that we live in a wicked generation. But we also acknowledge that there is nothing new under the sun. Lord, we know that since our father Adam fell, mankind has been rebellion against you, as his heart only set on defying you. Lord, we acknowledge most of all that you are sovereign over all things. We acknowledge that. You rule man's heart, no matter what he thinks. Lord, we thank you for this record of a wicked man whom you saved, gave the righteousness of Christ, made a righteous man, and that he brought so many others through the years, generations to righteousness. Lord, we pray that your sovereign power would be fully on display this morning around the world, and that your glory would resound through them. We thank you, Lord, for these things and these teachings. We thank you in the name of our Lord himself, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Many of our number have had the blessing of being raised in a Christian home and coming to know the Lord at an early age, but many others of us came to the Lord later on in life. We had opportunity, sadly, uh, to live uh, a godless and rebellious life in the midst of godless and rebellious people. And uh, those of us whom the Lord, uh, similar to Saul of Tarsus, 
uh, intervened, interrupted in mid-course, often we remember our initial zeal and how we very excitedly went about telling everybody about our newfound love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we told our family members and we told our best friends and we told our co-workers and we all remember how well that went. How we were accepted and our testimony brought great revival. How our family converted and fell at their feet before the Lord. And the town of Dillsburg, Pennsylvania has an annual celebration of the time Chuck Hartman came to the Lord. No, that is not how it happened. It happened for us as it happened for Saul of Tarsus. Our initial zeal in the Lord was met with rejection, anger, some of us more so than others. I, don't, I hope that none of us were actually uh, required to be let down out of a city in a basket, but our family did not immediately accept our acceptance of Jesus Christ. We lost friends, co-workers mocked us. The best we might expect was, oh, I'm glad that works for you. Why? There, there's, there seems to be no more fervent time in the life of a new believer than at that moment of, of rebirth, when their eyes are finally opened and they see the light of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. They, they see and recognize the heinousness of their sins, and yet they see the purity of the blood of Jesus washing it all away. And, and, they, and they want to tell people. But why is that so often ineffective? Sadly, not recognizing the almost universal experience among new converts, the modern church, especially since the days of Charles Finney in the 19th century, has made it a point to, to find the most uh, celebrated conversions. The people either of the greatest renown, a, a, a famous baseball player or actor, or of the most wicked lives, a, a, a drug abuser, a, a rapist, a murderer, and immediately put them in front of other people at their evangelistic rallies and using their name and the celebrity status of their, their notoriety in order to evangelize the lost. You can only imagine what would have happened had Saul of Tarsus uh, been saved in the, in the 21st or the 20th century. You, you know he would have been the first guest speaker on the 700 Club. Okay. Focus on the Family would be making a biopic of him starring Kurt Cameron. Okay. You, you know that he'd be right out front in the church. And, and yet, is that the way God does it? Well, if our own lives are any indication, for most of us, we have to say, well, I hope not, because he didn't do it that way for me, and I know he didn't do it that way for many of you, and what we experienced in our zeal for the Lord was nothing but rejection and even anger, and in Paul's case, danger. Well, well fortunately, we can look to the Scripture, and we, and we can see that this initial zeal and the rejection that comes against it is actually part and parcel of the prophetic ministry. That God doesn't intend for us to be a dynamic and successful evangelists the moment we are converted. Even Saul or Paul says it himself, you know, because of the, the, the greatness of the revelation that had been given to him, he was also given a messenger of Satan that he might be humbled. Later on, he tells his son in the faith, Timothy, that among the elders, there, there ought not be any new converts. 
lest they become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. We don't know our own hearts. And we mistake our own zeal for something that is actually useful for the Lord. But God knows the heart. And He knows that our own zeal that has not been tempered and matured by sound doctrine is only useful for our own pride and our own conceit and will often bring about our downfall, which we have seen in the modern era. In this celebrity evangelism, we have often seen those celebrities reject the faith. And perhaps even in the book of Acts, as we're reading it, we see an example of it. Remember Simon Magus, who was called the great power of God, and who drew great numbers to him, not only in Jerusalem, not only in the, in the cities around the, uh, the Mediterranean world, but all the way to Rome, the capital of the empire. But he clearly fell away. He was not the, the, uh, the convert that people thought. Paul identified himself with this prophetic call upon his life. And in this introductory section that we see in chapter 9, we begin to see a pattern that's going to come out not only in Acts, when Luke turns his attention to the Apostle Paul in the second half of his book, but also in, in his letters. And that is, Paul saw in his own life a pattern that mimicked that of the prophet Isaiah. We read in Isaiah 49, for example, The Lord called me from the womb, from the inward parts of my mother. He named me, and he made my, my mouth like a sharp sword. Jeremiah chapter 1 the prophet writes before, the Lord writes, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Well, we've already read in previous uh, sessions looking at the Apostle Paul, his words in Galatians chapter 1, where he says, But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. You see, Saul recognized his experience. When the, when the scales fell off his eyes, he recognized that his experience was that of Isaiah. But he also recognized that so was the response that he was to receive. And that response, sadly, is most common in our world. There are times when the gospel is received powerfully and effectively in our own eyes, and many people repent and come to the Lord. Those are times that we call revival. Most of the history, however, can be accurately described in the words of Jeremiah, the days of small things. The days in which the number of converts that the church sees in truth are very small. Even the Billy Graham Association admits that less than 10% of all who have come forward in their rallies still faithfully attend a church. Less than 10%. And that's a number of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of professions that have not turned to bear any fruit. Well, this was Paul's reminiscence of Acts chapter 9, his words in Galatians chapter 1. What is remarkable about Saul of Tarsus, the student of Gamaliel, the theologian of Christianity, 
he still had some things to learn. As great a celebrity, and in our mind, as great a convert that we could imagine, still had some things to learn. And not just about himself, but about the scripture that he had dedicated his life to know. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why he started strong, as we read in this passage. But before long, he's being quietly packed away and sent home to Tarsus. He had perhaps not been back to Tarsus in, since his childhood. In his own words, he was raised in Jerusalem. And so he had, he had not been back to Tarsus, as far as we know, since he was born there and left as a, as a child. And yet, that was the safest place for him. But it was also the place where he might learn what he needed to and be prepared by the Lord for the ministry that God had set apart for him. Now, there's a lesson in this for every one of us. And that lesson is that God's call and God's timing are not usually simultaneous. And we think of David, who was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king over Israel as a lad, as a boy. But many years would pass and many dangers to his life before he would actually ascend the throne in Jerusalem. God's call and God's timing are not simultaneous. And, and as we look to one another, and as we've been talking through this whole series about the ministry at Fellowship Bible Church and the necessity of raising up leaders, we believe, from our midst to shepherd the flock, to continually shepherd the flock, we need to keep in mind that God's call upon a man's life and God's timing for that man to step into the ministry are very rarely simultaneous. If I look back throughout the history of the Christian church, there's probably only one man that would receive pretty much a consensus vote that the call upon his life and the timing of his ministry were awfully close, and that was Charles Spurgeon. But I imagine that there were some grievous errors that even he committed because of his youth and lack of maturity, both in doctrine and in practice. Because I think the, the admonition that, not, not, um, that the elder not be a new convert, I don't think that bears much in the way of exceptions. And I think the church, it's, it's within the body of Christ itself where we need to be careful. That's where we need to be watching one another for the sake of the church, for the sake of the flock. And we should be especially suspicious of celebrities. That's a very dangerous position for any man to be in, even in Christ. There is only one celebrity in the church, Jesus Christ. There is only one to whom all glory is due, God. And whenever a man sincerely, unwittingly, takes to himself a ministry prematurely, then by God's grace, let him be silently packed away and sent to Tarsus. Let him have his time in the wilderness where he might learn those things that otherwise he would pervert in his ministry. Saul was a devout student of the Lord. He tells us that he was a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of that religion. 
He was a, a, a devotee of the Torah. He knew the prophets, and as I said, I think he very early on identified, especially with the servant of Yahweh that we read in the book or the prophecy of Isaiah. He uses many quotes from Isaiah in his letters and in his, in his missionary journeys, referring to himself, using the words of the servant. Now he understood fully that that servant was supremely Jesus Christ. But he also understood that the ministry of the servant of the Lord continued and continues in the name of Jesus Christ and that he, Paul, was in that prophetic line. But I think when he looked at his ministry, the words of Isaiah 6 very likely must have come to his mind. This is Isaiah's commission. And it's very similar to Paul's experience and to Paul's, the rejection of Paul's message. We read in Isaiah 6, in verse 8, And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Well, that's kind of the attitude that we see back in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. What did he do? He immediately began to preach Jesus as the Christ Jesus as the Son of God, going into the synagogues and arguing with the Jews that Jesus was the one to whom the nation had been seeking. Send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim lest they see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, understand with their heart, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now, I don't know how many of you have read that prophecy in Isaiah 6 and wondered what kind of a church growth pattern the Lord was following. <laughs> Certainly none that we read about these days. But we do know that one thing is certain in the Lord's plan, and that is He will be glorified. He will be glorified in all that he does, both in redemption and in judgment. And he, was, he will use, as we read from the pen of the Apostle Paul, he will use the gospel as a, as, a, as a wonderful scent of life unto life to those who are being redeemed, but also as the stench of death unto death for those who will not, for those who continue in disobedience. We, we don't like in our day to think about the good news of the gospel in its, in its darker aspects. But whenever the gospel is preached, judgment goes forth alongside of salvation. Those two things go hand in hand. When the Lord rides forth on that glorious white stallion, it is with the hand of redemption and the sword of judgment. And they're the same thing. The gospel 